Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, hey, I'm Stevie. If you are new, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and super grateful to be here uh, together in community. And that's what we're going to talk about today, just what is community? Why are we here? Why is this so important? And I love the community that we have here. Um, and she's right. You guys all look tan. I got a proper sunburn yesterday. Anybody else like rocking like a, you're wearing aloe right now? Your new cologne is aloe vera um, <clears throat> by Gucci. Yeah. Um, like not even farmer's tan, like proper, like my back hurts right now. So um, I'm so pumped to be up here. All right. Well, hey, we, we are going to be, yeah, don't, if I touch my back, you know what's going on. Um, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. We've been here now for a while, and we're going to be parked here, hanging out. And so if you guys have Bibles, you guys can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And what I wanted to say is that if you don't have a Bible, um, we have Bibles in the back. So please feel free to grab those. We would love for you to be in the Word of God. Um, this is how we are shaped and transformed. This is what we are grounded on. And if you have a ton of those Bibles in your trunk, bring them back. Just kindly, please bring them back um, so we can give them to more people. So anyways, you guys can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and as you're doing that, just a little bit of an intro. This is Paul's letter to the church. This is Paul, and he's writing, and his whole focus of this letter is, is how uh, we are going to be a community. How are we going to be this new community that pursues the way of Jesus together? And all of the times that he says you in here, it's better translated as the Southerns do it, it's y'all. So every time he's saying you, he says, y'all, and this emphasis is because the whole point of this is about the unity in Christ, that his goal of writing this letter is that we would be united in Christ. We are a new creation. We, we don't live as we used to. We don't operate. We don't think. We don't participate in community the way that we used to. We aren't motivated by the same things anymore. We are motivated by Christ. There is a flat ground at the foot of the cross. So it doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you come in with, what, what race or ethnicity or gender. We come, and there's a flat ground at the foot of the cross where we say, this is what we have in common. His name is Jesus. And so he says, everybody is welcome to come in so we can learn and apprentice our life to Jesus. We can begin to look like him. And so he has this vision of a new humanity in Christ. But I think at this moment, we have to pause and we have to recognize something. See, Paul takes an entire letter while he's in prison to write to a church and say, here's how you do church. Isn't that kind of fascinating? Because it actually was really expensive for him to write letters back in the day, a um, couple grand for him to write and then distribute a letter. And so for him to, in prison, use his money to write and distribute letters, to write about this thing called church, and then for it to be preserved for us today, there's something significant there. And I think as we can all attest, we can all understand, is that doing church is actually pretty hard because it involves people. I would be a great pastor if people weren't involved, right? <laughs> like, I would crush it, except for my job is people, and I love it. That's why I do it, but because there's something about if you've been around people at all or you've been alone with yourself, you understand people are messy, you understand that people are hard and difficult. You understand that it's awkward at times. It almost feels like it would be way more productive if God would just do something different. He would just hardwire us. He would override us and just make us get into shape. Or he'd make you get into shape. I'm doing fine. <laughs> just kidding. I haven't been to the gym in a while, so I'm not in shape there either. But, like, but th that we realize this. Like we're almost like, man, God, you would just do this faster. And yet, for some reason, when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he breathed his spirit into his disciples, he said, go, make disciples, do this thing called church, do it in community, because there's something about human relationships as we reflect God that does that deepest kind of shaping and transforming that only can happen in relationship. We're in a relationship with God and he calls us to be in relationship with other. And so Paul writes this. And I think we know the significance of people. Um, we, we like to be autonomous. We like to do things on our own. But, but we realize that people have an incredible propensity to harm as well as an incredible propensity to heal. Very recently, just one of the legends of our day, Timothy Keller, passed away. And one of the things that I loved about 
Tim is that he ended well. And unfortunately, he's the anomaly. Unfortunately, we all know, and I'm not going to list their names, but we, we, we know, we've seen the news story, you've been around long enough to know that there are pastor after pastor, there's leader after leader. I mean, we don't have to just look in the church, we can go outside and look at politics, we can look at families, we can look at people around us, we can look at our CEOs, whatever it may be, we recognize that people have an incredible propensity to blow their own lives up. And this last kind of part of, of Ephesians 4, right before this one today, and so last week, Paul talked about how he's, God has given us the apostles, the teachers, the prophets to strengthen, to equip, to build up. And so it makes sense why if we don't do a good job of understanding this new life, this new self we have in Christ, we cannot just blow up our own lives, but blow up the, the collateral damage of the people's lives around us. I've sat down with so many people who have had a crisis in their faith because of the failure of another person. And Benji and I were talking about it a couple weeks ago. We were like, man, is it just enough for us to finish like, with our marriages intact? Like, it, I feel like it's a very low standard. I feel like God is actually calling us to something more. And, and so I go to Paul's writings in the letter to Romans, and he says in Romans chapter 7, he says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? The things that I hate, I do those things. And the things that I do want to do, I don't do them. And then he says, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? There's something inside of us. There is a war inside of us between these two wills. Ephesians 2, so if we go back a couple chapters in verse 3, he says, all of us have lived among them, meaning like the Gentiles of the world at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And I think what's fascinating about that verse is not that it talks about how we gratified the cravings of our flesh. I feel like I understand that. But that it says we follow its desires, meaning that our flesh has its own will. It has its own desire. That's what makes sense of Paul's writing where he's like, well, I want to do good, don't you? You want to do good? You, you want to be that kind of husband, that kind of wife? You want to be that kind of coworker? You want to be that kind of friend? And yet there's something inside of you that doesn't allow you to do the good that you want to do. It sabotages it. See, we know that we want to be the patient, loving, present, serving husband. And yet we follow that up with sarcastic cutting remarks. We know that we want to be the friend that's, that's faithful, the friend that's trustworthy, and yet we, in our own insecurity, don't create the space for that kind of safety and trust to happen. And so we realize that there is this thing inside of us. I know I'm doing a lot of work on this thing called the flesh, this thing called sin, this thing that, that we have inside of us that, that actually co-ops and, and it makes it sabotages the good that we want to do. I'm spending a lot of time in that because Paul's going to be talking about in this how we need to put off the old self and put on the new self. And as we look at the collateral damage of things that have happened in the world around us, we can recognize not just out there, but if we do a little bit of work and we look in here, we begin to realize that's not an out there problem. I think every one of us, whether you're in here and you've been following Jesus for so many years, you maybe are hearing about Jesus for the very first time, you're new here, you're new to church, welcome. Um, but I think every one of us can recognize that we have this war inside of us. I heard someone say that our sinfulness will always take us further than we wanted to go. It'll hold us longer than we wanted to stay, and it'll make us pay more than we ever wanted to pay. See, our old nature, it overrides us. It sabotages the good that we want to do, and it overpowers us. If you've ever tried to overcome something, if you've ever tried to, in your own grit, and your own will, try to overpower that, that desire inside of you to do the thing that you don't want to do, and you've tried doing that on your own, you realize how powerless you are to it. Or if you're able to push that kind of gopher down, a gopher pops up in another hole. And we find ourselves in this cycle where sin in, in, in our flesh just keeps popping up and keeps sabotaging everything that we want. And so I think the question for me as we dive into this text is what actually makes Christian spirituality different than the modern day self-help culture? 
the Encinitas self-help, self-realization, self-actualization culture? What, what makes this different than us doing some things and some exercises that can help us improve some internal peace and, and us knowing ourselves a little bit more? And I actually think that I would go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They've recognized in their 12-step programs that there is a need for a higher power. Why is that? What is it about us that when we truly come down to it, we recognize our inability to become who we desire to become on our own? And I think there's a lot of reasons, but one thing that I personally recognize is this. I have a lot of sheer grit and self-will, and I can do a lot in my own grit and self-will, can't you? You can produce a lot. You, you can actually get into shape quite a bit. You, you can cut things out of your life. You can do a lot in your own grit and self-will, but there's a lot more that I can't do. I realize the more that I get older, the more that I add things like a child in my life, as you add marriage into your life, or you add more friendships, you add a job, all those things you add onto your plate, that very small plate of life that we have, we realize that our diminishing resource of energy and the non-discriminate resource of time is limited and it doesn't let us be who we want to become on our own. There's a recognition that we need something, or would I say someone outside of us to transform us to shape us. We all recognize that this is something that we need. And I think the other thing that I'll say is when I've tried in my own power and my own strength and my own will, and, and I've stepped into some really honestly beautiful exercises and practices, but when I've done that out of self-focus and self-healing, what happens is my, my need for community grows, but my ability to have it diminishes. Because if I want to keep my internal peace, but you're annoying, I wouldn't be standing on the stage. <laughs> right? Because as we do this, this work, what we end up doing in order to self-protect and self-preserve in self-formation, as we do that, community is actually impossible. So Paul writes this letter. Because if we want to be shaped and formed to be like Jesus, if we want to experience true transformation, if we want to experience freedom, it comes in the context of really annoying, really difficult, really awkward moments within relationship. And so he writes. He writes this. He says in Ephesians 4, verse 17, So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life that you've learned. When you heard about Christ, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to, be put, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Amen. So the heart of this passage, if, if you've noticed, at the very center of it, and I think what the, the main theme of this is to put on this new self and to take off this old self. So Ephesians 4.22, it says, you were taught. 
with regard to your former way of life. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what have they been taught? Because he says, you have been taught. You were taught. And so you have to ask the question, well, what were they taught? And essentially what Paul taught them is that as you step into relationship with Christ, as you begin to follow him, it is not just like you have him as a sub-compartment of your life. You don't just put him as like a sidecar or you throw him on the back of your e-bike and you keep going. He's saying it is a full overhaul. It is a full change and transformation. On the human side of things, we call this conversion. It's when you, you are converted to become a follower of Jesus. On the divine side, God sees this recreation. You are a new creation. You are made new. He sees you as Jesus if we find ourselves in him. And so what he says is you throw off that old self. Those old ways of thinking, those old habits, those old patterns that were maybe more self-focused and self-fulfilling, you throw that off because we are now God-focused and we do that for the sake of others. Um, a little bit of Greek for you, that he wrote this and a lot of this is in the aorist tense, which, which means it was a past event that has present ramifications. So when he says put off and put on, he's saying, I already taught you that. You already did that. When you, follow, when you follow Jesus, when you took a step into relationship with Jesus, you did put off your old self. But it has continual ramifications, meaning you have to continue to put off. You have to continue to, to step into that new identity. It essentially is like this. If you got let out of jail and you're walking around still, the streets of your neighborhood in your orange jumpsuit. And he's like, what are you doing? You're free. You're no longer a prisoner, but you're walking around with the garb and you're looking like you're a prisoner. And so he's saying, you've been set free. Now put it off. Put on some new clothes. That's, that's essentially what he's saying. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once, it has got all, once it's got its wings, it will soar over the fences, which could have never been jumped, and thus beats the natural horse in its own game. See, the thing is, is this is what happens when we step into relationship with, with Christ. Even though we can go through strategies of becoming better and better, we can maybe improve in different ways. We, we can join different communities that have a focus of that self-improvement. We, we can go to therapy and that's beautiful and good and we can grow in those areas. Those are all good things, but that's not exactly fully what Jesus came to do. He came to make us new. But notice he says, as you are made new, you improve. I think it's a classic like second button, first hole analogy, you know what I'm talking about? You guys ever button up your shirt and you put the wrong button in the wrong hole? It doesn't matter where you get at the end, you're always gonna be a little off kilter. It's the wrong starting point. I hate when that happens. That's why I don't wear button shirts. I don't button them, right? It's just the worst. And, and, and so it, it's just we, the wrong starting point. If we start with self-improvement, we miss it. But if we start with Jesus, what happens is inevitably, we grow to become improved people. That's not the goal, though. The goal is Jesus. Second button, first hole. Uh, St. Augustine, in his book, Confessions, he talks about how he was previously, before he became this incredible saint and incredible thinker, he was a promiscuous man. He was always kind of sleeping around. Um, this was all before his conversion. So when he showed up at a town, as he's walking in, an old mistress runs up to him, and she tries to get his attention, but he just keeps walking. And you could tell us, I mean, she's probably confused. And so she says, but it is I. And he turns around, he says, but it is not I. That's what we're called to be. That's not me anymore. That old way, that old 
posture, that old practice, that is not me. I don't, I, that's not who I'm going to be. That's not how I'm going to live. And so the result now, as we get to this new self versus the old self, is kind of threefold, as you see throughout this text. So the first thing is a soft heart. The second thing is a renewed mind. And the third thing is a beautiful community. As we step into the new self, we have a softened heart. We have a renewed mind and a beautiful community. So let's start with a soft heart. So Ephesians 4, 17 through 18, Paul says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, um, in psychology, the most common therapeutic theory is called CBT, or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which states you change your thinking, and by changing your thinking, you change your emotions and your behavior. This is one of the most clinically tested and proven methods, but Dr. Nadia Dietsch from the University of Copenhagen says it actually works both ways. It's not just like you change your thinking and everything else changes. There's actually this symbiotic relationship. Your heart and your emotional inner world affects your thinking as well. So she says this, good thoughts cannot be plant, just be planted into your mind. They need the right emotional soil to take root and grow. Meaning if we want to grow in Christ, you know, we, we, can, we can learn, we can fill our mind with things, but if we don't have a soft heart, if we don't have a heart where, where the soil is actually ripe and ready to receive, it won't grow. I mean, how often have you guys gone to a friend and in love you maybe told them a hard truth? But because of circumstances, because of stress, because of where that friend might be at, they were totally unable to receive it. Maybe years later they come back and they said, hey, you were really trying to help me out. You were trying to save me from dating that one person, and I did, and I messed up. You know, like we experience that, where the soil of our hearts isn't right. So the solution isn't always just to go to a podcast to retrain your thinking. See, what we see is that if we have a hardened heart, a podcast won't work. But I think the Bible is actually so much more holistic in, our, in its approach towards formation. I think what, what Dr. Nadia was, was hitting on is actually this very biblical idea. See, the word heart in the Bible is used a couple times prior to this, but the, the word heart in, in the Greek mindset is the seat of your emotions, but it's also the seat of your thinking. It was the seat of your will. It was the core of who you are. You didn't separate your thinking and your emotions and your acting from your heart. There was no compartmentalization from there. So what it was essentially saying is that if your acting doesn't flow from your thinking or your emotions, you are disintegrated. And what the Bible is trying to do is it's trying to have us be fully integrated, where our thinking and our emotions and our, and our uh, doing, all of that is aligned under Christ. And so the Bible talks about our heart in this way. But the question that we have to ask as we come to this, is, as he talked about how you have a hard heart, is how do we get hard hearts? How does our heart get calloused and hard? And so in Ephesians 4, when it says you have a hard heart, that word hard is the Greek word porosis, which, which kind of comes down, it's this kind of marble or it's a medical term that was used to talk about a bony formation in the joints. And so the, the verb porun meant to petrify or become hard and therefore insensible. And so this one commentator, he's writing and he's, he's like, but that happens not because of stubbornness, that happens because of circumstances. And so he's kind of likening it to, to the world, right? Like we can get hard hearts because circumstances around us are crazy and we get numb. Does anybody else recognize that? as we walk through life, as we navigate through political cycles, as we navigate through just the endless news cycle, as we navigate just through waking up, eating our cereal, going to work, coming home, changing the blowout, and going to bed, and doing it all over again. As we navigate all of that, isn't it easy for our hearts just to get apathetic and hard? And so this commentator is saying that's what he's talking about. That it is about the circumstances, the world around us. The world is what is causing our hearts to be hard. But there's another view, another commentator. And he says, if you look at this throughout the Bible, what you're seeing is that they have hard hearts because of their willful and deliberate sinning against God. 
And so he's saying it's not just the world around you. It's, as we talked about in the very beginning, it's our flesh. It's our desires that are bent away from God and towards self. And as I was thinking about this, um, I was realizing both are right. There's not actually one camp that we have to fit into. We don't have to just say like, yeah, it's just the world that hardens your heart or it's just your own willful culpability that hardens your heart. I think as I sit down with people pastorally and as I look into my own life, I can see that these both do this to me. That I get apathetic and I get hardened in my heart. I lose sensitivity towards others and towards the brokenness in the world because of all of it. The Bible has a framework where it says that there are three enemies to your soul. It is the world, it is the flesh, and it is the devil. The world, the the circumstances around you, the gravitational pull away from God, the, the endless news cycle, the things that are swirling in our culture, the buzzing around with our friends and how they're they're talking, all of that negative and sinful direction away from God, that's the world. And that is working against you, working against your heart to harden you. And then there's the flesh, as we spent so much time talking about. It's this thing inside of us that has its own will, its own desire, that is bent away from God. It sabotages the good that we want to do. And so we find ourselves in cycles where we're like, why did I do that again? And you pull out the very few hairs that you have left on your head, and you're like, why do I keep doing that? And then there's obviously the devil, which is always working towards our demise. And so I As I sit with people, I recognize that there are multiple factors at play. Multiple things that are are pulling you away from God. And, And so as we step into wanting to soften our heart, that's now the next question. How do we do that? How do we actually put off our old self and take on this new self? How do we know that it's God working in us, softening our heart, or is it just us trying to force and manipulate God. Well, there's a few things throughout Scripture. Ezekiel 36, it says, I will give you a new heart. God is saying, I will give you a new heart. I will place the right spirit within you. I will replace your heart of stone, and I will put in a heart of flesh. And then Jesus shows us this throughout the Gospels. And if you're sitting here, and you are someone who have given your life to Jesus, you recognize it in your own life, it is the mercy of God. It is the love of God, the selfless, sacrificial love of God that has shaped and transformed our hearts. The Holy Spirit enters us and gives us a new heart, a soft heart. But over the course of time, even though we have already put off our old self, we have to keep putting it off because the calcification of our heart happens. It's like the hard water that just keeps showing up at the bottom of my kettle. I don't know why our water here sucks. It's so bad. But I have to keep cleaning it. And that is the same thing is that we have a calcification of our heart. So how do we soften our heart if we are made new in Christ already? And I think we also have to wrestle with, like, you know, sometimes we do feel apathetic. And sometimes we're like, all right, God, is that you working in me or is that me doing all of this? And and can I just say, it's a really fine line. As you step into, okay, I'm going to read my Bible. I don't really want to, but I'm going to do it anyways. I'm doing it out of obedience. And then there are other seasons where you're like, I just want to do nothing but read the Bible. I just want to spend time in community. I want to pray for hours on end. And then other times when you're like, I don't have a prayer in my heart at all. All I can say is Jesus. And both those seasons are valid. I don't know where you're at in that, but can I just affirm both of those seasons are valid. And what I want to highlight is, is you don't need to perfectly know what your motive is in it. You don't need to perfectly know how much is God doing this right now? How much am I doing this? Because it seems to be a relationship where God's spirit wants to work with our spirit so that we can together move towards him. You don't need to know that fine line. What I want to highlight for you is that if you have a hard and calcified heart, a petrified heart, that doesn't move. A petrified heart, an apathetic heart doesn't wrestle. So if you're wrestling with where are my motives right now, If you're wrestling with, I don't have anything but Jesus right now, if you're wrestling with like, man, I don't really want to read my Bible right now, can I just say, if you're wrestling with it, you're alive. If you're wrestling with it, your heart has softness to it. Can you just take that as encouragement and say, okay, I'm going to keep leaning in. You don't need to know the motives. You can keep saying, okay, God, I don't know, but keep working. When you find yourself fully apathetic, fully uninterested, and not even willing, That is when you know. 
your heart is deeply hardened. And you probably need a community to come around you and pray for you because it is God who gives us a new heart. So that kind of moves into the, the next part. As we talk about the heart is, is the seat of our emotions as well as our intellect, as well as our will and our behaviors. I think the next thing that we need to think about is like, how, if we want to have a soft heart, I think the question is also, what are your inputs? What are you taking in? What are you listening to? What are you surrounding yourself with? And so that goes into the next thing is a renewed mind. If we want to have soft hearts, we also renew our minds. So Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 so I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, and they are separated from the life of God because of ignorance. Now, the, the word futility is meaning empty, hollow, meaningless, or grasping for the wind. Um, Solomon, as he wrote the, the book of Ecclesiastes, he kind of hit on this a little bit, where he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. It's kind of a depressing book to read. So if you're just in the fields and you don't want to listen to like a Blink-182 song or something, just read, read Ecclesiastes. It'll really make, make you feel something. I, I, was, I was yesterday with my son and we were at a birthday party and... Um, He's nine months old. So he's like just sitting there in the grass doing nothing but being a blob. And it's the best. Um, and so we turn on a bubble machine. And like, I don't know what it is about bubbles, but kids love it. Like he lit up. He was so stoked. And like, that was so pure. That was like really, really pure joy to watch my son like pop these bubbles. Well, he doesn't have good dexterity. So <laughs> bubbles hit him in the face and he loved it. It was great. And so it was like so fun watching that, and, and that was like so playful and pure, but I really just started thinking about life, and I was thinking about this, this text, and I was like, man, what does it mean that like we're grasping for the wind? We're, we're chasing after things, things that are meaningless. And I was like, man, how often are we just chasing after like bubbles? When it seems fun, right? It's a nice dopamine hit. It feels good, and then all of a sudden we get it, and it pops, and it's nothing. And we find ourselves then just waiting for the next bubble to come, the next dopamine hit, the next thing. And that is what he's talking about, is we live our lives just chasing after these things that ultimately are hollow and empty, and they're going to pop, and we have to just wait for the next one in order for us to feel good again. And that's what he's talking about. That's the futility of our mind. When we run after things that have no significance, no weight to it, that's how we get hard hearts and darken in our thinking. And then he says in verse 20, that, however, is not how you were learned. It's not the way of life that you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. And so he does three things here. First, he says, you learned Christ, meaning Christ is the teaching. And then he says, you heard him, meaning Christ is the teacher. And thirdly, you were taught in him, meaning he's the environment, or he's the presence that we are taught in. I want you to notice he didn't say you learned about Christ. He didn't say you were learning all of these things about him. You didn't learn that he was Lord, or that he did do this one thing 2,000 years ago on a cross. You didn't learn all these things about him, that he was a Jewish rabbi and had curly hair probably, right? You didn't learn those things. He says, you learned him. It's relational. It's close. It's experiential. Right? I don't want to just be filled with, with facts in my head. I think that's, this is why there are plenty of obedient people. There are plenty of, like, quote-unquote, good people. People in our church, people in the church who, who are good Christians, but they don't know Christ. And then I think that there are people who very clearly don't know Christ, and they live that way. See, we can know a lot of things about Jesus. We can come in here and listen to a two-hour-long sermon, buckle up. Um, just kidding, I'm going to keep it really short. But we can listen to all of these sermons and podcasts and read all of the books because we love information. We are in the age of information. We can do all of that, and yet our hearts can remain unmoved, completely untouched. It's not enough to learn facts about we must learn Christ himself. That only comes in proximity, time, and relationship. Again, he is the teaching, he is the teacher, and he is the presence. 
We need to learn Christ as he is the subject we learn. He is the one we learn from and we sit in his presence relationally through prayer, through community, through scripture, and through silence and solitude. In fact, I mean, all of those things are ways that we get to be with Christ. And as we learn Christ, because this is the only place in all of ancient antiquity where it says you learn someone. Everywhere else it says you can learn a book, you can learn a philosophy, but this is the only place that says you learn someone. And so as we learn Christ, as we grasp him, new creation happens. Transformation happens. An entire life revamp happens. And then in verse 23, some scholars translate it, we get to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We get to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, meaning that we are given a new imagination. Our imagination is recaptured. I don't know about you, but I think I notice when I'm in unhealth, I notice when I'm like drained and I'm burned out, when I can't dream anymore. I'm not talking about like dreaming at night, but like when I have no vision, I have no inspiration. Am I the only one in that? Right? When, you, when you just feel like you feel so drained, so tired, so exhausted, you, I can't even see forward into the future right now. I can only think about right now because I'm just so exhausted, so hurried. That's where we live. And so what he's saying is if you're renewed in the spirit, your imagination comes alive again. You become alive. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, don't conform to the world. Be transformed. That word metamorpho is, is from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Be transformed, renewed, completely different by the renewing of our mind. We are transformed as we learn Christ. Now, I've been doing like just the, you know, really deep dive into neuroscience um, on my days off, you know, just for fun. Um, but not actually. I don't have time for that. I have a kid. But I've been, I've been looking into a little bit, listening to this podcast, and they talk about in, in neuroscience, there's this idea of neuroplasticity, right? Uh, many of us are familiar with that now, but there's this, there's this reality that as we continue to think on something, that that actually forms us and shapes us. And so, and that's kind of the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy, is, is like as you, you've been walking this one path, that's the easy path. You're always going to take that path. But if you want to change, you know, if you want to change your behaviors, you kind of need to start stepping into new paths. And, and the idea is like this. If you trudge through a forest, you're going to go on the path. There's like a massive forest and it's thick, but there's a path. You're taking the path, and that's what happens in our brains. We have these neural pathways that have been ingrained in us because of how we were raised, maybe because of biology, or because of the habits that we've done over the course of our life. So if we've always chosen to go for the chocolate cake, we're gonna choose the chocolate cake. Like it's just, that's the way that we go. That's how we're formed, we always choose. And you could think of certain habits where you're like, man, why do I keep doing that habit? Well, it's because it's, it's like in your neuroplasticity, your brain is wired now to always go the path the path of least resistance. Go the easy way. And so through Christian spirituality, as we follow Jesus, as we repattern our life around the lifestyle of Jesus, we have to trudge a new path. And friends, that's awkward and it's hard. Because if you're going through a forest, you have to bring out the machete and you have to start to cut off some of those branches and you have to chop down some of those bushes and you have to walk a path that hasn't been walked before in your brain. And then as you do that one time, you're like, it's not even a path, but I'm going to choose to do this again. And you walk that same footstep. And what happens when you do that for two months? A path begins to emerge. What happens when you do that for two years? It's a proper path. What happens when you do that for 20 years, 30 years? You have a highway. And all of a sudden, you are formed to be more like Jesus because you chose that over and over again. It is hard at first, but over the course of time, you are physiologically changed. You are metamorpho, you are renewed by, the, by our mind. And so there might be some awkward things as we step into relationship with Jesus, as we want our hearts to be softened. And it might feel like you're like, you know, again, discerning, is this me? Is this God? Am I just forcing it? You might be forcing it. Keep forcing it. And do that in community. And keep praying and keep saying, God, I feel like I'm forcing this. Would you just purify this? And keep walking that path that might be a really difficult path as you pursue Jesus, but over the course of time, that is the path. That other path, that path towards alcohol, that path towards whatever that thing may be for you, that path towards cynicism, that path will eventually grow over because you're not walking it anymore. And so when we choose actively, intentionally to put off, to say, I'm not going to walk the path of cynicism, I'm going to choose to honor 
I'm gonna choose gratitude in this moment. You know what happens? You become a person of gratitude. If you choose to think on things of God rather than all the negatives, you become a person who's filled with joy and hope. You choose to reflect on this prince of peace, the perfect peace, when everything around you is buzzing, you become a non-anxious person. We are formed by the renewing of our mind. And just for me, practically, one of the things, because I'm a pastor, I, I get really serious about like spiritual disciplines. And so I will like lean into like Sabbath and I'm like, my phone's turned off and I'm like, don't even talk to me. I'm in a Sabbath right now. And I try to spend time alone and I'm like, I get really serious about it. And then I find at the end of my Sabbath, I'm like, I kind of feel like depressed because I feel like I was just all alone and I did all these things. And, and because I get so serious and I started realizing, I was like, I'm serious all the time. I'm sitting with people in really serious situations. I'm, I'm working through some really deep stuff, really personal stuff, not just with me, but with other people. I'm serious all the time. So maybe in my Sabbath, what I need to do is recapture my imagination. I need to start trudging a new path. And so what I've started to realize is on my Sabbath, I need to delight. I need to play. Um, I was talking to someone recently, and they said, Sabbath is the time that you get to go back to what did your inner child want? If you could go back to when you were 12 or you were 16, what they, when they weren't thinking about all of the demands, all the pressures, all of the, the things in life, what did that child want? It's like, well, I wanted to go surfing. Go surfing! Sounds like a great opportunity to do that with God. Well, I, I kind of just wanted to like hang out with good friends and eat a good meal, and I wanted to laugh. You should do that and do that. Bring God into it. And so those are opportunities. Those are ways that we can step into and engage our mind being renewed, but also our heart being softened. We are transformed as we renew our mind. And then finally, all of this turns into a beautiful community because as we become people of soft hearts, as we become people of a renewed mind, we become people who pursue relationships in a different way. And so if verse 19, it says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learn. Now drop down to verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is Paul. He's actually representing the Ten Commandments. He's essentially saying um, these are like the last six. So the first four of the Ten Commandments are all God-focused. The last six are all people-focused. And so what he's going into is he's just saying, here's how you now live as a beautiful community. Because notice everything he says is like, hey, don't steal. Why? Because that pulls from people. Now, instead of stealing, give. And so just just a couple quick things, because a lot of this actually is going to come up in next week's message. Um, But he talks about a few things. He talks about impurity, which is, We don't want to be people of selfish lust. We want to be people of selfless love. That's what he's talking about with impurity. And with greed, we want to be a people, we don't want to be a people of self-based taking, right? Selfishness. But we want to be a people of hard-working giving. And I think the other thing with greed that I just want to highlight real quick is like how beautiful Jesus is in the middle of that. Because greed is, I'm, I see and I take. I want and so I take. And if you go back to the Garden of Eden, the very first sin was that Adam and Eve saw the fruit and they took it. And this cycle repeats throughout the Old Testament. It's actually kind of annoying if you read it because you're like, when are you guys going to figure it out? It says they see and they take. And that, that stanza is repeated throughout the Old Testament. But then the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3.16, it says God saw us in love and he gave. It's this anti-cycle of sin. We see and we take, he sees and he gives. 
Jesus is so beautiful in how he reverses the cycle of greed and sin in our lives. I mean, could you imagine what our homes would look like if we saw and we gave? What our marriages would look like if I saw and I gave? If we followed the way of Jesus right here. And then he talks about anger. Um, and, And notice he doesn't say anger itself is bad. He says, in your anger, don't sin. Jesus is saying this specifically because he knows the character of God in the most quoted verse of the Bible, by the Bible, it says God is slow to anger. So anger is good. It is the proper emotional response to injustice and pain and wrong. So anger is good. He says, but when you're angry, do it in a just way, the righteous way. And also how you express your anger matters. And so he says, Using this metaphor, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, if you, who loves anger in here? I mean, some of us actually really like it. It kind of makes, it feels nice to be angry. And if that's you, you can move to Greenland in the summer because it only, the sun sets only for an hour. You can be angry for 23 hours, right? If you want to follow this exactly. Right, don't let the sun go down on your anger. But his caveat is not just move to Greenland so you can be angry longer. That's not what he's trying to get at. What he's saying is don't give the devil a foothold. Because this all affects our relationships. When we stew in our anger, when we fantasize the perfect conversation where we know their rebuttals and we know our rebuttals and we know how we're going to win in that conversation, when we can list all the reasons why that person's wrong and we are right, don't do that. That gives the devil a foothold in your life to harden your heart. And that's not the renewal of your mind. That doesn't create a beautiful community. And then he says, don't steal. I feel like that's pretty obvious, right? Don't do that. But the reason why he says don't do that is because he wants us to be generous. Those who have been stealing, steal no more, but but do something useful with your hands so you can give. There's something about how we realize if we don't live out of fear and scarcity, but we realize the abundance we have in Christ, we can be generous and we can Find out the joy it is to give and love other people. And then he says, speech. He says, build others up. Don't tear each other down. Build each other up. Because why else would we tear other people down? Except for self-focus. Because when we tear other people down through sarcasm, it's because we want to feel better about ourselves. There's fear in that. So if you look at all of these old ways, which we'll go into a little bit more next week, all of them are a fear response. All of them are a response of lack and scarcity and self-protection and self-promotion and pride. And so why does Project Self, why is that different than the way of the gospel, the way of Jesus? Second button, first hole. We started in the wrong point. It's not about us. It's not about me protecting and preserving. It's about God. It's about Jesus. And so Paul ends with Jesus. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But if you notice, Paul ends right at the gospel. He ends right at the cross. He says the new self that we have is Jesus. We are empowered to take off the old self and to put on the new self because of Jesus. The way of life, the softened heart, the renewed mind, the beautiful community, it's all because of Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus seems to actually have modeled all of these virtues that are listed. His words, his righteous anger towards sin, I mean, he even cared for vulnerable women who were standing at his his foot. And the God who created everything with his words, rather than using his speech to create worlds in that moment, there was utter silence. He let our old self, he let our sinful desires, the world, the flesh, the devil, die with him. What Jesus knows and what we need to know is that our self-improvement tactics will not change our hearts. Only the selfless love of Jesus can do that. Only when we grasp what Jesus did on the cross. Because the cross changes our hearts, it changes our minds, and it changes our behaviors. When we understand that we already are dearly loved children, when we understand there is nothing left for us to protect, 
There's no need for us to have to feel superior over anybody else. There's no need to look for love in all of these other places. There's no need to hoard belongings. When we realize all of that, we get to live freely. And so we put off our old self, and we step back into our new self, which is you are deeply loved children. At the cross, our old self was gone, our new self was given, and now every day is just a battle for us to be reminded of that. I want to go back to the original quote from C.S. Lewis, because he, he kind of ends with a caveat. He says, There may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow. And that's when it can't, you know, can't jump, it can't fly. At the stages, the lumps on its shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they're going to be wings. They may even give it an awkward appearance. See, as we go through life, as we go through community, as we try to be a beautiful community, as you try to step in and, and you try to discern, man, is this my will? Is this what I'm doing? Is this what God's doing? My heart kind of feels a little hard. You try to discern that. You try to renew your mind. You try to step into practices and let the Spirit of God change and transform and create new neural pathways. As you do that, it's awkward. It's going to feel difficult. There's going to be tension. There's going to be difficult things because you're so used to going to one way and now you're going another way. And as we do that, it is a beautiful practice because we will become a beautiful community as we bear with one another in love as Christ loved us. And so can we walk forward awkwardly? But can we do that in love and become a beautiful community? Let's pray. Jesus, we... I think we just go back to the beginning. We realize that there is still inside of us Desire, there's still inside of us pride, there's still inside of us selfishness, there's still inside of us our flesh and our desires that want to sabotage the good that we want. So Lord, I just recognize in this moment and I pray that you just help us recognize every moment moving forward that what we truly need is not just another strategy. We don't need another book to read, God. What we need is your spirit. Spirit of God, we need you to come and to renew, to transform, to place in us a new heart and a new spirit, God, because we are unable on our own. And so, Lord, in this very moment, we just say with our own will, Holy Spirit, come. We give you permission to move in our lives, to transform us, to shape us to move and have your being inside of us, Lord. We love you. We want more of you. We want to be a community that reflects you, God. The world is desperate for that, and we are desperate for that, Lord. And so would you come? Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.